Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, it's 321 Go with Cosmo Macero, an interview with Walter Pavlo of Forbes, who's talking casinos and the upcoming opening of Encore Boston. And in two minutes with Tom, we're talking MBTA. First up, 321 Go. Let's talk about something important. Hello and welcome to 321 Go on OA On Air, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. In this installment of 321 Go, the mayor of Somerville, Massachusetts, agrees to an interview under somewhat false pretenses. Now he's suing the high-profile sports radio figure that duped him into talking on the air. Does the state's wiretap law apply to mischievous media hijinks? We'll discuss. And we talk about the future of local news coverage with journalist and publisher Chris Farone of the Boston Institute for Nonprofit Journalism and whether a state commission could have a role in solving what ails this critical industry. Finally, two of our digital media experts, Shakir Gregory and Ashley Lockin, talk about how major political candidates like the president are going all in with Facebook advertising and what it could mean for the digital advertising economy. Joining me here on 321 Go is Cayenne Isaacson. Hello. The official voice of OA on air. Cayenne, summer's here. Summer's here. We've transcended our 50th episode. 51. We're now on 51. Lots to talk about. Let's just get to it. And it's a good one. All right. All right, Cayenne, let's get started with the mayor of Somerville, Joe Curtitone, and his beef with Barstool Sports, the popular uh, but sometimes controversial uh, sports uh, uh, publication and, and, and media, you know, large media organization um, based here in New England. It starts with this back and forth. It really started with a simple question by a Globe reporter uh, to, to, I believe, the Boston Bruins. How come you did a partnership with Barstool Sports? That's all she asked. That touches off a huge debate. The mayor of Somerville, Joe Curtiturn, weighs in at some point with his comments about Barstool Sports, uh, and they're off and running. Now, Kirk Minahan, talk radio celebrity here in here here in Boston, also controversial in his own right, and now establishing uh, a partnership and a relationship and a presence with Barstool Sports Media. Wants to talk to the mayor about this, has been trying to get him on the phone, trying to interview him, the mayor won't talk to him. So what does he do? Okay, so Kirk Minahan reached out to Mayor Curtitone and requested an interview. He wanted to kind of get his thoughts and, and speak to him about his comments about uh, Barstool and, and his anger. Um, and Mayor Curtitone's office did not get back to him. Uh, so long story short, fast forward, he decides, well, if he's not going to talk to me, I will pose as a Boston Globe reporter, Kevin Cullen, and I will request an interview. And that's exactly what he did. And Mayor Curtitone granted it to him. And he got him on the phone and he did a pretty good job, apparently, of impersonating Kevin Cullen, Globe columnist and journalist for many years. At some point, he says, hey, you know what, I want, I'm going to record this just so we have it. And the mayor says, no, that's fine. And they do Thinking their interview. he's talking to Kevin Cullen from the Boston And Globe. the mayor thinks he's talking to Kevin Cullen. Yeah. 
And he's not. No. So what happens? The mayor has now filed suit against Barstool Sports and Kirk Minahan. Yes. Saying that they've that, that there was a violation of the Massachusetts wiretap law, which essentially uh, requires any conversation that's being recorded for both parties to be aware of the recording, whether it's on the phone or otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there could be some nuances if it's an obvious thing where I've got a microphone in your face. Maybe I, you know. Nonetheless, both parties who are part of a recording have to give consent an interview have to give consent or a recording of any kind and it cannot be done through fraudulent means which he is alleging this was under fraudulent means i mean saying th- there's a case for that i you know i'm that. not kevin cullen i'm calling saying i'm kevin cullen yeah on the other hand how many morning shows including here in boston because this ultimately this is a this is an audio content thing right it wasn't mm-hmm. a written interview how many morning shows do these fake surveys and things and usually at some point they say is it okay if we use this for the radio so i think they get around that but the whole idea of being sort of punked by a media celebrity it it, it, i mean it's not completely outrageous that this happened but he probably has some kind of a case that's worth you know it seems like it's got something some, some basis to it yeah um, um so we'll see what happens but uh, yeah there's a lawsuit here tell let me tell you something that is absolutely a, a, another of the mayor's sort of pr gambits uh, uh, pr moves I, I don't know how it works for him in the end but uh, it's going to keep uh, a lot of people talking about him and this whole thing yeah so we will we'll, we'll have to stay tuned We'll stay tuned on this one. Pretty interesting media development. All right, Cayenne. All right. Up next, we're talking to Chris Ferrone, who's the editor and publisher of Dig Boston, as well as co-founder of the Boston Institute of Nonprofit Journalism, and Nate Holman, local journalist. Fellas, thanks for joining me. Oh, so happy thank, to be thank here. Thank you. Great. Thanks for joining us here on OA On Air. Um, lots to talk about and lots at stake. So the state of journalism today, um, business models that were traditional and made money hand over fist have collapsed over the last 15 years or so and really precipitously over the last decade. Um, Chris Boston Institute of Nonprofit Journalism is one of the models addressing that, and I want to get to that in some detail. First, though... I want to talk about this commission. There's a legislative commission that's been proposed as part of a bill that's being considered on um, uh, in, in, at the state house, um, and you've talked about this. You did a Facebook live, which I followed closely. You've written about it. Um, there was a hearing just a few days ago at the state house on this piece of legislation. There's going to be a follow-up that sets the table, but I know you've got some concerns, as I do. I mean, I have I have concerns about a state commission addressing the future of journalism, but concerns about the makeup, who is going to serve on this commission, and if real everyday journalists are, are adequately represented uh, as part of this effort. Thanks. Uh, so you know. It, I have, there are definitely, there are a lot of levels of skepticism that people have. There are some people who are just completely uh, 
uh, miffed by the idea of the state having anything to do with journalism. There's the obvious criticism that who needs another study? We have Neiman here. There's, there's plenty of studies uh, about the Massachusetts landscape as well. Uh, also, do we need a study to tell us what we already know? But then beyond that, uh, there's this very arbitrary makeup of this of this commission. Uh, one one proposed seat, for example, is of the Schuster uh, Institute for Journalism uh, at Brandeis. Sure. Not hype. They literally don't exist anymore. They shut down at the end of 2018. After a tremendous run, they were one of the first to really do nonprofit journalism, you know, university-based incubator years ago. They've, they've had some great accomplishments, but they don't even exist anymore. So um, we've obviously been told, and some of the pushback to our criticism is, you know, this is that's why we're having hearings, this and that. But then why did they have to, you know, there's 17 members. And uh, I'll go through a couple of the other ones. You know, another big concern of ours is, you know, the, they're like the Mass Municipal Association has a seat on it. Well, the Mass Municipal Association is the last group that should have a seat on a journalism commission. The Mass Municipal Association collects dues from municipalities that are that come off the tax base, sure. and then they lobby on behalf of those of, and towns. Of no, on behalf of the of town officials, and I think that's the big mistake. Fair I know enough. we could we could split. No, no, fair. This. It's a good but point. My point is that they have they they were. They were on the other side of the table from us in the in the FOIA debate. I will only mildly push back and say, if you look at a municipality as the community itself and the people in it, they're the ones who have the most at stake in terms of not being served when community journalism dies. Totally. You're saying the, associ- saying the industry association represents state go- well, the, uh, city government. The joke is that I'm on the board of the Society of Professional Journalists in New England. We were there's no seat for them. So you know yeah. how that may, you know things like that. So listen, you know I don't even want to come off as petty. The truth is that we this is this is l- l- honest. We really want, and this is why I brought Nate along. We really want the voice of actual journalists because. You know, they're like the broad strokes of things. Everybody knows everything's in trouble. So I, it, it's very important. And the kind of the way that they got off on the, the foot they got off on, where there's somebody from Harvard, of course, somebody from Northeastern. Listen, I'm sure there's great people. It kind of came out of nowhere, too. It when came I, out of nowhere. I, I, you know, when, and, I, when I saw your Facebook thing, I'm like, wait a second. What is this? Yeah. So when we found out about it a couple months ago, I think it was in April, yeah. uh, Jason Premis, my colleague at, uh, at the Dig and Binge, wrote one of his, you know, he, he's an award-winning columnist and he, he really went to town on this thing. You know, typical Jason, you know, 1500 word column type of thing and you know it was not snarky it was really saying a lot of the concerns i'm raising here and you know what a lot of the lawmakers responded representative ehrlich and and we really respected that and then next thing we know and 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 by the way and we'll get to this we have a huge network i would argue that binge has a bigger network than almost anybody we publish with more than a dozen outlets around the state we work with dozens of community of, of the uh um, there are people that are being forgotten completely. How about all? The, we have more than 300 community access stations sure. from CCTV. I mean, you've, cr- you've taken an old concept, the news syndicate, right. and really brought it into part of your model for preserving community and investigative journalism. Yeah, and I know we'll get to that, but my point is just that we can real, we could, we want to help, and that's why we're glad. So you want to see to the table. There's a, well, we also, we want to bring people, that's why we're glad there's this second hearing. We have this extensive network, and we're going to, you know, people are going to show up with different perspectives, from, and not just from Boston, from around the state, but with, they, with less than 24 hours notice. You made a good point that, if, okay, if you're going to have all these universities represented, what about Framingham? What about Western Mass? Oh. All, of, all have something in state. Nate, let me ask you this. Uh, you're a journalist. You work in different mediums with different organizations. How do you feel about the state of the industry getting to a point where some level of government commission or, or initiative is being formed to address it? Because, you know, I think of that, and I, I am immediately 
I immediately put up a red alert and said, wait a second. If a state commission is studying the free press, I don't know how that's going to turn out, but I don't think a lot of good is going to come of it. That's just my first reaction. I think that's the first and only reaction I have. Uh, it's a good way for them to sort of direct attention in one direction and away from the others. Um, like you said about the municipality, the, the municipal government representatives there, they can just direct the attention towards other issues and the ones that are actually plaguing their communities Yeah, if they have this much of a say in the state of local journalism. Yeah. The idea of, of, of the existence of news deserts, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm one of those people that, that, that began my my prior career in journalism from the ground up covering city and town government covering community affairs learning the best civics lesson you can get because they don't teach civics anymore in school is understanding how how a municipality works that's like 75 percent of the stuff that generates news all right so watch this nate how many when you last your last job was you know where you were covering you know for one of the patches or something how many towns have you had to cover at one time at one time, I probably was covering four of them. Um, and selectman meetings are, you know, one selectman meeting a week is kind of difficult on the, you know, exhaustion front, let alone, you know, what they're going to do in Stoneham, what they're going to do in Winchester, and then swing it back down to Brookline to see about some town meeting uh, situation they've got. It's a lot for one person. And it's a lot to make people that actually live in that town actually care. It is. It really is. Um, I don't want to get nostalgic. You know, I cover. I, I you know, I, I look. Everyone starts out as a journalist. You flat broke, but I got to a point where I was making whatever living I was going to make in you know 1992, and I had a full time job writing about you know one Western Mass rural community because mm-hmm. there was number one all kinds of news happening, and number two there was enough of, of a business to support that kind of of, uh, uh, of 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 investment in in journalism. So let's fast forward to today and let's talk about binge. One of my questions was, can I say that as the acronym? But yeah, I guess no, that, that's, that's, a, that's how you pronounce yeah, it. Boston Institute of Nonprofit Journalism, and you've also talked about the hybrid nonprofit for-profit model what is the um what's the financial model for binge in terms of supporting journalism and 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 keeping journalists not just working but delivering high quality work that really uh, really is going to be uh enlightening to communities totally thanks so you know um well binge is a reaction to a lot of things uh it is in part you know this whole discussion it, it's really i the discussion around what's happening in journalism in the state really starts with gatehouse obviously and and the kind of just what they've really done and this week alone we're looking at the consolidation of 50 weeklies into 18 of course the news was broken a couple of weeks ago but so what we yeah. said was when we started a nonprofit, sure, we're stakeholders in the dig. I wasn't an owner of the dig at the time, but I, I was an editor there with no budget really. And uh, we're looking at this like, you know, what, what can be done. But when we started the nonprofit, we said not just for the dig. What we're going to be like a free-floating, like independent entity that uh, that works with all sorts of people. So, for example, in this past week alone, we did a, a story about parole for Worcester Magazine, and we did for a startup in uh, Western Massachusetts called the Shoestring, a major 3,600-word investigation into the Hamden County Correctional Facility and their significant pepper spray. Pepper problem. spray, Paul. Saw so, that. so you know that's and and then yeah. we'll, and we'll disseminate a lot of this content. So it's it's not just syndication that we do some of that columns and stuff, but but what we really said was, 
here's the basis. And uh, there's we're fortunate in Boston, actually. There are viable outlets. There are outlets that do well, uh, that are still sustainable. Dorchester Reporter, um, Bay State Banner, uh, the Metro's still around. But you know what? Not everybody has that extra. They definitely don't have what they used to have. So maybe we could come in. And certainly as an editor on that front, I understand, you know, that's what we needed. We needed those resources. Sometimes it's just financial. Sometimes people need an editor, as we call it, a quarterback, to like a project manager. We bring in, uh, you know, um, uh, photographers, uh, data journalists, stuff like that. And really, every situation is different. I would say like uh, BASF, that company, remember, they used to have a motto like, we don't make products, like we make products better, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We do kind of make products, but that's really, uh, we also some like, almost like a Make-A-Wish Foundation. You're an editor. What do you want? What do you need? So the Metro, uh, we're Nate uh, works a lot now. They came to us um, and they, they wanted to do something. They have great distribution. They're you know not as strong as they used I'm to be. I'm glad you mentioned the Metro but, because yeah. I think it's a really important publication. I think it's a really important part of journalism in Boston. It serves an audience. It serves an audience that every day is got more and more time to read the Metro because they're stuck so we somewhere in a them, train. We said to them, we said, you know, we, uh, I especially, you know, Pine though, like when Stephen Year was the, the Metro reporter for the Metro, uh, you know, the Metro should cover the heck out of transit. Of course, they, you know, but they didn't have a dedicated transit reporter. So Binge has been, we've done six pieces for them so far uh, with Dan Atkinson, for, great former Herald reporter. Yeah. Uh, so we're kind of like, you know, matchmaking and, and getting resources from here and there. It's an opportunity for individual reporters to get grants. It's really, it's really experimental. We, we raised um, in year three, we raised two hundred thousand um, dollars, and that was under. Um, we we're fiscally sponsored by a bigger nonprofit, but now we're becoming our own five hundred one c three. And the thing I'm most proud of, besides like the actual journalism, which we're doing a ton of it, is we're really like been a lifeline. And this is back to this whole the the commission and the statewide issue is we are the ones who get the call. You know, there are outlets that people I really hope are watching, like North Suburban News. They're in Reading and four surrounding towns, and you know they 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 called us. And, you know, even if it's something, I'm not looking for credit, but I'm saying we spent hours on the phone with a lot of people, shoestring in western Massachusetts. Um, there's also places outside of Massachusetts. But even right here, we've done features for the Valley Advocate in, in, uh, in the Pioneer Valley. So, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, we're really, uh, it's the opposite of competition. This is time for teamwork. Yeah. And uh, I really just hate to see, you know, there are things that, um, listen, I don't know if the government, it should be the government that does it, but somebody's got to be bringing resources and figuring out, where, you know, who needs help. Chris Nate Holman, thank you so much for coming in. Hey, can we do this again? Because Absolutely. it's important for us and on this on this program to be covering what's happening in the state of journalism. You got your hand on the pulse of it, and you and you and you're running an organization that's really important. So I'd love to have you back. Thanks, guys. All thank right. you. Thanks, Phyllis. So I'm joined here by Shakira Gregory and Ashley Lockin. Hello. Hi, Cayenne. Thanks for joining me, guys. Thanks for having us. So you guys have a really interesting blog on our O'Neill & Associates blog this week titled, Why Facebook Ads Are Better for Campaigns as Opposed to Twitter and Instagram. And you specifically look at what the president is doing right now for his re-election campaign around Facebook ads. So I'm going to pass it over to both of you because you are smarter on this than I am. Tell me more. So what prompted us writing the blog post was an LA Times article, if I'm not mistaken, that basically um, outlined that the president is spending tens of millions of dollars on specifically targeted Facebook advertising in swing states. And we thought it was pretty interesting because the president is currently outpacing 
every Democratic challenger. And obviously, since he is the incumbent, he doesn't have to deal with a primary contest. The fact that he's spending this much money on Facebook this far out um, shows really that the president is doubling down on the platform that a lot of folks would argue was central to a lot of his success in 2016. Um, I think, frankly, we would we would be remiss if we didn't say Facebook, out of every social media platform, probably has the most intelligent um, ad targeting and ad delivery system. They've been working on this for years, um, pretty much since around their founding. It's kind of the central offering um, that makes them you know, as profitable as they are. It allowed them to go public. So Facebook really offers a lot of intelligent targeting for every campaign of every size to really micro-target a lot of key constituencies. Yeah, and if you really take the time out, you can target these very niche communities like the Trump campaign did. And you might not think it would be worth it, but it actually really is. Yeah, and um, supporting that, you know, Facebook is still far and away the largest social networking platform out there right now with over 2 billion users. And if you thought that, you know, other competitors like Instagram or Twitter were catching up, comparatively, Twitter has only around 230 million users. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're not really even in the same stratosphere um, in terms of the access that Facebook has to folks all around the globe at this point. Um, And on top of that, if you think platforms like Instagram um, are going to be more popular to focus on for 18 to, say, 35-year-olds, Facebook, just by sheer numbers grandfathered in, are, is still the most popular platform among 18 to 35 year olds. And on top of that, the kicker is when you advertise on Facebook now because it owns Instagram, you're getting two platforms for the price of one ad campaign. Cross posting. And that's both Insta Stories, which hundreds of millions of those are consumed daily, um, and obviously Instagram feed posts. So everything that you put out there is being replicated on another incredibly popular platform for folks in the 18 to 35 Gen Z millennial kind of cusp area. And then you have another couple of billion folks actually on Facebook that you're still reaching the traditional way. So can we talk a little bit about what the Trump campaign is gaining and it, it, mm-hmm. beyond advertising uh, and reaching people, you're talking a lot about the data that they are collecting through yes. this process. Um, I think it, the, the big thing that they're getting out of this is that there's a lot of metadata that has been painstakingly captured um, by Facebook. So not only do they have the ability to reach folks, they also have a lot of audience insights and audience data, not to mention you know, Facebook has reactions and so many different versions of engagement. They can really and intelligently see how their ads are performing with every sliver of every audience segment that they target. And they already have this information from the 2016 campaign. So now they already have it and they can utilize it for the 2020 campaign. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out once we get closer to November 2020. All right. Well, you guys will have to come back and keep us posted. (laughs) Down to be back. Thank you. That's it for 321Go. Up next, Cosmo talks to Walter Pavlo of Forbes. All right, up next on OA On Air, we're joined by Walt Pavlo, journalist for Forbes.com, specializes in uh, white-collar crime, but also different industries that, that sometimes 
encounter that, including gaming. Walt, good to have you. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me on. Excellent. And we're also joined by my colleague, Ben Josephson, sort of a gaming industry public affairs expert. Uh, ben, uh, great to have you in here in, in studio with Walt also. Thanks, Cosmo. Um, Walt, it's been a tremendously eventful 18 months plus in the Massachusetts gaming industry um, in a number of different ways, primarily focused around what we know, what we know as Encore Boston Harbor and the Wynn Resorts Company and uh, uh, just a uh, tremendous amount of activity uh, around that license and an investigation that the Gaming Commission here in Massachusetts conducted. Um, talk about sort of where this ended up and, and what your thoughts are on it because... Um, in the end, right now, Encore Boston Harbor is going forward and planning to open uh, um, essentially on schedule. Well, I, th- I think, uh, Cosmo, the thing that I found the, the, you know, the most taken aback by was not necessarily when, uh, but it was the Mass Gaming Commission and, and how they approached uh, this thing. They were in a v- very difficult position to start with, but it looked to me like you know, over the course of this, they had a, n- a number of missteps, starting with the, um, you know, the, the former chairman, Stephen Crosby, and his failure to disclose some, some relationships that he had with the, you know, one of the landowners. Um, going beyond that, I think they, uh, you know, they, were, they seemed to me to be enamored by Wynn, the celebrity of Wynn when he came to town. And um, to, to me, I, I just think there was just a number of missteps. There was also, what, what five months that went between when Crosby resigned and the appointment of a new chairman and and then to put out such a, a damning report which which mass gaming did uh, against when um, talking about you know really their, their um, that they didn't they weren't fully they didn't disclose as they should have some of the things that were obviously going on in the company um, and then embarrassing them embar- you know in, in mass gaming did a job of really embarrassing when in a in a series of public hearings here and then in the end they didn't do anything they, you know they they paid up they you know, said hey you can pay a fine and you can open and to me there just wasn't a plan b and the, yeah. there clearly was a plan b written in the law but they just didn't follow it um all this precipitated by um, revelations last January or, or January 18 um, of, of conduct uh, by Steve Wynn, um, investigation in Las Vegas, action taken there. Um, the Gaming Commission here in Massachusetts does its own inquiry. Steve Wynn steps down. The board is essentially, you know, cleaned out for yeah. the, more or less. Right. Um, and, and like you said, the Gaming Commission conducts a very comprehensive investigation. In the end, um, it feels to me, I think their CAO, Matt Maddox, is, is, is severely damaged by the process. As a CEO, as a leader, it's got to be difficult uh, to be in that position now and go forward um, having carrying that much baggage from this investigation. They've got to have a, an on-site monitor, uh, a, a third-party monitor. There's got to be executive training. That must be humiliating for him. So, yeah, that's that's one takeaway. Is they, they've actually done some some damage has been done to the company, yet they're going forward and, and continuing to operate the facility. Well, well you know, I mean, if you look at, if you look at the... Um uh, to me, if, whether you know if, if you you're suitable or you're not suitable, I mean, it seemed like that that was the the criteria that that mass gaming was initially going for when they yeah. looked at Caesars and they you know they they say hey we're just looking at this you know what it's not very black and white, 
you know, we're, we're not going to allow Caesars. And then Mohegan stepped in with the Sterling Suffolk uh, deal. But I just don't think that they, you know, when it, when it came to, to win, they seemed to, like, give them a little bit of rope there. And, and I agree with you. I think Maddox has been, has been injured as a leader. Um, he, they, they certainly didn't find him, you know, it, the feeling that he was suitable was not, you know, uh, unanimous and, and uh, you know, coming up with coaching and stuff. I don't know. That doesn't seem like a, it doesn't seem like a very realistic solution to, to anything. But I, I think he was definitely hurt in this. You met. You met. We're talking to Walt Pavlo of Forbes.com. You mentioned a Plan B, um, and and certainly in the legislation, there is written a Plan B for such a scenario, a way, a process to identify a suitable operator to come in and to take over. It's not a snap, but it's a process. And what I found very interesting, I, I guess it's ironic, uh, in all of this is that. It, it appeared that no one really could grasp or believe in or understand or, or, or including the commission, go all the way to the, the, all, all the way forward and say, yes, there is a way. Uh, they, they just couldn't. They just couldn't envision that. The, the only thing that I ever re- remember Mass Gaming pushing back on was Stephen Crosby, the, the then chairman, saying something like, "You know, they're building. They're proceeding at their own risk." Yes, that was that was t- tough words, but that was it. That was it. However, in the end, sort of the the epilogue, the postscript, it's it's Wind Resorts, the company itself, which sit, raises their hand and says, "We're, we're going to replace ourselves, right?" Because because they enter into talks, they which have since broken down, but they acknowledge entering and confirm entering into talks with another operator, with MGM, right, owner of the Springfield Casino, uh, which we watch with interest, and 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 I know I know Ben sort of keeps a close eye on that, um, but uh, as, as do I. But I, I find that as, as just kind of the ultimate epilogue, and that that actually wins as actually yeah we can be replaced, right, and, and we'd like to replace ourselves. And, and, and Mass Gaming could have probably gone a long way by just putting that out there to say, look, everybody relax. If there is a plan, you know, if in the event that win is not suitable, which is a possibility. Wynn could have been financially, you know, you know, like any company could be not suitable at some point. So sure. you know, somebody has to come in. What is Plan B? Yeah. You know, you can't just keep propping the same person up, and that's what they did. I think with with Wynn. they just they propped up the same entity. So so Ben, if if, if that's not enough, um, sort of turbulence and, and 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 sort of billiards happening in in the industry, MGM actively operating a, a facility in Springfield now, and they stepped in and said, hey, you know. We're interested in, in talks to acquire the Everett Casino. Yeah, and that, that was interesting. Walt, thanks for being here. Um, you know, quietly, Springfield sort of operating throughout uh, most of the period uh, that Cosmo discussed since uh, <clears throat> since the Wind Resorts was being investigated by the MASH Gaming Commission. Not a lot of news out of Springfield, but sort of periodic reports of, of how they were doing in the market. What, what's your evaluation of... You know their numbers at this point, um, running about 65% of projections. Had a small layoff. Some some conversation about MGM's debt. W- how how do you see that moving forward? And and what relationship, if any, did that have to their interest in Everett? Well, um, you know MGM at, in Springfield is a is a much different scenario, much smaller scale. Um, the, the, you know, when is obviously into international traffic. They were junket operators. They're bringing in you know really equivalent like music mutual funds that come in and, do, and, and, and lay down wagers here. Springfield's never going to be that market. And I, I do think that, uh, 
MGM is still getting their footing there. They, you know, I've, I've read several things about them trying to do more on their marketing. You know, where where's our market? How do we attract people? They're obviously competing very heavily against, um, you know, the, uh, the the casinos in Connecticut. And, um, you know, I just see it as a much different market. This is a behemoth. You know, this is really the big, you know, this is the casino on the East Coast right now. I mean, is what, is what whenever it's going to be. We'll, we'll, we'll have to see how it goes. But this is going to be very much an international play than more so than a local play, which which Springfield is. And, and so if you're MGM in Springfield with, with new competition coming into the market, uh, you know, a lot of stories in recent years about perhaps we're reaching a saturation point here in the Northeast for gaming. I mean, where, 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 where does MGM go? Where does the Mass Gaming Commission go in terms of looking at the mix of facilities and, and, and whether or not they're going to continue to be successful? Well, one of the things I think, and Cosmo brought it up earlier, is you know, that um, you know, Wynn actually looked and said, you know, we, you know we've looked at a, another suitor to come in and we could be replaced, right? But there are, there's movement right now in the gaming industry. I think um, you know, Bethlehem, the Sands down in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, has just recently been gone, you know, acquired through somebody else. So I think there's going to be some consolidation. Wynn itself was even looking at, at uh, some big acquisition down in Australia. Yep, they're looking to get into Japan. That, so it's one of the, that, that deal fell through because of a leak. A right. press leak killed that deal, which is amazing. Right, it it is amazing, but it does tell you that there's a lot going on. To Ben's point, there's a lot going on in the industry about. You know, where, where is the profitability? You know, who, who can operate these things? Is there a saturation point? Do some need to be closed down? Do some need to be scaled back? And we're, we're going to find that out. And, and, you know, if you were to ask me if Wynn is uh, still for sale, I would say that they are. You know, the, the, the Encore Resort here is, is very much like it's like any other business. Any property inside of a publicly traded company that's trying to do the best for shareholders is, is going to look at any deal. Sure. So, you know, why not, why not Everett? We've been, we've been talking to Walt Pavlo, Forbes.com. Just one, uh, just one thing on MGM that I think is a, is a reasonable takeaway in terms of how they're looking at their position and the success that they've had. Think about if they're willing to have conversations, and, and remember, they were rumored months and months ago to have having conversations with Wynn Resorts, but if, if they actually had entered them, regardless of how they end up, it, it, it tells me a few things. Number one that they're willing to make that move and create a lot of, um, you know, unrest in the industry in Massachusetts, including for themselves, because they're underperforming, they're at 60% of what they should be doing in revenue. That probably means that the deal they have to make, because they would have to then um, uh, divest of that property because they can't have two licenses in Massachusetts, the deal they would make would be at some kind of uh, discount or, 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 or write-down because the facility is not performing as well, and, and, and maybe they don't, they don't do as well on that as they, as, as they could otherwise. So they're, they're willing to create all that in pursuit of, uh, of 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 uh, the casino, whatever it it, it suggests that they are um, they're disappointed not with not just how things have gone, but how they see things going for MGM in Springfield. No, that's I, I think that that's true too. I mean, and, and again, I think it goes throughout the industry. To me, Wynn was looking at very much an international play. They, they, I think they like their operations in Macau. Um, I think that they're looking to get into Japan. 
I know that um, you know they, they were they were looking to get into Australia. Maybe maybe the the, the domestic you know uh, the domestic uh, demand is is not what you know is is not what they expect. And so maybe Wynn is looking looking internationally. And you know I I, I just don't see their, their love for Boston. I really don't. I, I I think that there's there's something that says that they're they're looking elsewhere for something. Yeah. All right. Walt Pavel, thanks for joining us. It's great to have you. Great. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Ben. Thanks to Walter Pavlo for joining us. Up next, Two Minutes with Tom. Hi, Cayenne. Hi, Tom. Two Minutes with Tom. Episode 51. Can you believe we're beginning, almost beginning our second year? Yeah, it's really exciting. Podcasts. Actually, we're, we're into our second year because we had a couple of special editions that we aren't go. counting into that 50. Yeah. So Over terrific a year for all of you. That's that we've great. been doing this. And you. Yep. Yep. I'm very proud. So we would be remiss if we did not talk about the MBTA, I think. At this point, a lot happening on the MBTA. There's been... And a lot of talk, a lot of chatter. Fair hikes are coming on July 1st. And in the last couple of weeks, since derailments and a lot uh, everything that's gone on, there's been a lot of people saying that the time is, is not right, right to ask riders to pay more for right. insufficient service. Well, it, all, all I know is that it takes you over an hour to get here in the morning, and it takes everybody in this room over an hour to get here in the morning, whether it's commuter rail red line a green line mm-hmm. and uh, to increase monthly passes from 85 to 90 dollars or to increase the commuter pass from 200 plus to almost 300 dollars is is the wrong message to be sending in a day and age when the delays the derailments and the the operation overall is not is not operating is not is not functioning uh, it, it, the way it should so it looks like you're punishing ridership for the payment of maintenance, when in effect, historically, deferring deferring payments and taking care of things along the way has been a, a, a half-century-old story mm-hmm. with one governor after another. It's not just Charlie Baker. It's a whole slew of governors since the 80s, frankly, that have deferred maintenance so that you know they didn't have the money to pay for it. They didn't want to increase fares. They didn't want to increase taxes. Kick the revenue the point there to take care of it and so forth. And now, you know, the, the, it's all coming home to, to, um, to payday. People have got to understand that there's so much work that needs to be done to modernize that, that rail system. It's the oldest in America, going north, south, east, and west. And the, the fact of the matter is that you can't lay the blame on one person, even though I understand Marty Walsh on mayor, who said to, to the governor, hey, look, you, you can't punish the working class in the city in this greater Boston area for the sins of governors over the last 40 or 45 or 50 years. Yeah. There's a, a long list of people who are now speaking out and saying, you know what, it's just not the time. It's just, it's very bad politics. And, um, you know, it's, it's tough. They're just going to have to find the money elsewhere and get this done, be it from the, the federal government, from, from road taxes or whatever it might be. But they ought to get monies in here and spend the monies on infrastructure everywhere, including the rail and 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 uh, transit systems. Yeah, 
well, you know, we're a 21st century city. It would be nice if we had a 21st century transportation well, system. Well, ex- ex- that's exactly right. To I mean, go right along with it. People want to live in the city of Boston. They want to live in greater Boston. And as it grows, and it's growing, it's growing, you know, just disproportionately. And it's growing in a lot of ways without the mass transportation needs that you have to have in order to keep people moving, not only to to work from home, but to church, to hospitals, to, you know, to uh, shop mm-hmm. for foods and so forth. I mean, that's really what it's about. And if, if those systems aren't functioning, then the city doesn't function and the growth doesn't work. Yeah. Well, I think that there will be more MBTA stories to come, but thanks for your thoughts this week. You're very welcome. Thanks, Kayan. That's it for this week's episode of OA on Air. Now, don't forget to subscribe on whatever your favorite listening platform may be. You can also check out OA on Air on our own O'Neill & Associates website. Talk to you next week.